From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, constitutional law professor Alexander Sessis joins us to discuss the Constitution and our collective adherence to it. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to the public morality. To fight this illegal, unconstitutional injustice. All we say to America is be true to what you said on paper. If I lived in China or even Russia or any totalitarian Maybe I could understand some of these illegal injustices. Maybe I could understand the denial of certain basic First Amendment privileges because they haven't committed themselves to that over there. But somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly, somewhere I read of the freedom of speech, somewhere I read of the freedom of press, Somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest for rights. That was Martin Luther King during the final speech before his tragic assassination in Memphis in 1968. As you just heard, King shrewdly used the Constitution as well as the Declaration of Independence to connect the civil rights movement to the efficacy of America's shared public values. The Constitution's initial three words say it very simply, we the people. This succinctly captures the document's mission. It is amazing to think that a document that was originally drafted in 1787 has only been amended 17 times since the creation of the Bill of Rights. But as American society changes, how does the Constitution adapt to those changes? Is it designed to evolve, or is it frozen in time, and it is we the people who must constrain ourselves to the limit of the Constitution's intent? Joining me to answer these questions and others is Alexander Sessis. Professor Sessis is the Raymond and Mary Simon Chair in Constitutional Law at Loyola University School of Law, located in Chicago. Professor Alexander Sessis, welcome back to The Public Morality. Oh, thank you. It's such a pleasure, Byron. Thank you so much for inviting me. And, b- and before uh, we get started, on behalf of Public Morality, I'd like to wish you a, a happy birthday. And how does it finally feel to be 30? <laughs> well, at uh, 51, you know, definitely <laughs> getting on, but uh, tremendously uh, grateful for the many opportunities that I have and for the beautiful family that I have. I, I, I really appreciate your, your role in Now, to frame this this conversation, uh, is the Constitution, in your view, a a living document? And if so, how are you defining that term? I think so. I I wouldn't – there's even a more nuanced term than living. 
Texas that came up with the Jerry Lewis running mate. We had a still evolving constitution, evolving constitution. That we don't have a, a literal constitution. We have very broad concepts about everything from uh, due process and equal protection that have at times been interpreted in a very discriminatory way, separate but equal. The segregation was the way equal protection was interpreted in the late 19th to the early 20th century, the Plessy v. Ferguson decision being the worst uh, manifestation of that. And then we had a reinterpretation that there was dignity involved and protection and segregation was not allowed as a matter of equality. Formal equality was not enough. That to me shows evolution, but it's even, Byron, it's even beyond that. I mean, that's just an obvious example. A much less obvious example is that the Constitution literally says the, that the Congress has the power to coin money. In the late 19th century, there's big debate. Well, can Congress make paper money? It only says coin money, and, and, and <laughs> the conclusion was, yes, it's, uh, it's, it's inferred in there that you can also do that. There are many other examples, the development of First Amendment free speech doctrine, the evolution of our religious freedom doctrine. Uh, the originalist position is, has, which is the opposite of the living constitutional position, has some interesting points. Certainly history must is critical. We are not going to come up with the way that we approach the Constitution for nothing, not any of it. But it should not be the dominant way that we work. It should be a important, the history should be an important factor, but not the determinative. It should, there should be a, a, a convergence of various important factors for it to be important. And I think that's the living constitutional position. And, and with, with, with uh, deference um, to those who, who have an uh, originalist perspective, um, I mean, there are those uh, who wish to go too far with the concept of a living or uh, I'll use the living doctrine for, for, for this question because um, of the original moral inconsistencies um, being slavery, women and second class citizenship um, when the crafted was was originally drafted when the document was originally drafted there, there's a tendency to want to delegitimize its origins and how, uh, how do you and I think that uh, Justice Thomas, for example, who is uh, an originalist, has a very different view with uh, race and uh, originalism. He obviously would disagree with the racism that was predominant in, uh, throughout the centuries in this uh, country, and he would certainly have the time of framing. Uh, but he, yeah, he, he thinks uh, the original position as something more analogous to a broader principle of equality and a violation of that, the hypocrisy of that principle by the framers. Uh, there's also a tremendous uh, originalist uh, view that uh, Professor Jack Balkin at Yale has adopted, which is called, he calls aspirational originalism. This is very different from the mainstream. The mainstream view is uh, original meaning, the meaning of uh, the time which I think is much more ambiguous. Professor Balkin speaks about originalist aspiration, that is to say, the aspiration of equality, the aspiration of liberty, uh, of equal citizenship, were things which were very different than the practice at the time. And so he speaks about in original, taking the aspirations of the early period, but uh, uh, being able to seize 
the current reality is cast upon more and more faces. Uh, public meaning, popular movements, uh, traditional interpretations, and so on. So that's a, uh, a minority view amongst the originalists, but something that I would say is the, the, more, the most appealing of the, that variety of schools. Well, let me just ask, I mean, that sounds as if you're moving really close to your original definition of evolution. So, I mean, how, how different are those two? That's a great question. Uh, many people have said that Professor Balkan sounds more like a living constitutionalist. He, he would not say, say so. Um, I, there is that element, but it's not identical. I think one of the, 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 the we can differ, differentiate it from the aspirational originalism, we can differentiate from living constitutionalism in, in uh, maybe a very clear dichotomy between another point of view that uh, Professor Jacob Strauss uh, holds and his view of living, uh, living constitutionalism is an evolution based on judicial opinion. So as the court, let's go back to our example of segregation and separation and equal protection, he would say that the living constitution was the, the living aspect of it, the, the, the branches growing, the leaves growing, the living tree, is a metaphor that comes from Canadian law, but Professor Strauss has adopted, that that uh, is something that the judiciary has um, has grown, so to say, has fertilized. Uh, other people take a different view of living constitutionalism, and they speak about more of a popular movement, the gay rights movement, for example. They would say that uh, you know it's popular morality that is and should be driving the courts. This is different, I think, from the originalist position, because the originalist position says we must not just begin with the current precedent, the current uh, court decisions, or the current popular mores. We must look back at the history. We must look back at um, – it's a necessity. It's, it's obligatory. We cannot escape it. I tend to come down I, – I tend to see meaning in both schools, and while I believe certainly in evolving – Constitution. I'm not strictly in either camp. I think that there are principles, and you and I have spoken about this before, mm -hmm. that derive from the Declaration of Independence, from the preamble to the Constitution, that I call liberal equality for the common good. And I think that that is the core principle, liberal equality for the common good, uh, and that history, judicial opinions, popular movements must still conform with that core of uh, constitutional ethics that goes back to uh, our framing but has never been fully realized. As a constitutional scholar, um, does the first year of the Trump administration give you some concern? And I'm not, I'm not asking in the context of, you know, piling on President Trump right now, which we could always, I'm sure one could easily do, but just what has come down? Is there anything that concerns you? You know, there are a number of things that concern me, and there are a lot of things that embolden me as well. Uh, President Trump has tried to use the executive orders in order to make major modifications, for example, in immigration policy and his, his agency policy as well, for example, the Department of Agency. But those, those things really concern me because the function of the Constitution is to reduce the power of the executive, as I mentioned, both the Magath and the Nahr system, to not give too much power to the president so that there's a check. There's a, uh, there's a check from the other two branches of government. 
the other hand, what has emboldened me is that the judiciary has been willing to question, uh, uh, to put an injunction, to limit uh, the decisions of the executive with the immigration uh, example uh, from uh, various countries that would uh, have people coming in. And the Congress has given some pushback, although I wish it were it were greater. Because I think in many cases, uh, President Trump is not really responding in the true, or I should say not true, but uh, traditional Republican values, for example, in his approach to the uh, negotiations with Russia. Um, so I've been emboldened that there has been pushback from the other two branches of government, which is what I think our system should be working at. I also think to, you know, to say that we're in a tyranny, that would really go too far. I'm more concerned that what we're really, what we're getting is something much more of the very powerful and the very rich, what we might call an oligarchy or a plutocracy, getting such unusual and uh, larger than ordinary citizens access to the politicians uh, that uh, it has reduced the ability of the average citizen to influence policy. That concerns me uh, as well about our constitutional democracy. Um, you, you mentioned the um, executive order, and there's, um, there's, there's an executive order I want to um, discuss. And then I also um, follow up with some actual legislation that's fooling around Congress right now. But when the president signed um, the religious liberty executive order, now some believe that that particular executive order didn't do much. Uh, others see it as expanding the latitude in the area of political speech. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but if you are, how, how do you see that type of executive order? Is it just merely political pandering? This is, this is something that was initially drafted, I think, by Jeff Sessions. Am I right? Mr. That's Mr. correct. You know, I, I have quite a few concerns with that. Um, perhaps my biggest concern with that is that the import, most important test of the Establishment Clause. That's, there are two clauses of religion in the uh, First Amendment. One allows us to exercise religion freely, and the other one prohibits the establishment of any religion. My concerns with the executive order that you referred to on religious liberty is that it does not use, as far as my review of it, the uh, accepted test, that test which the Supreme Court continues to use, the uh, Lemon Test, but rather uses a something another test called the coercion test and this coercion test allows for much more government funding much more entanglement government entanglement with religion uh, giving tax breaks that where the religious institution could use of them for uh, religious secular not uh, sectarian uh, purposes um, so that's uh, one of my concerns um, I have other concerns where it seems to me that the, um, the, there's a lack of acknowledgement that there is a, a sense of friction um, that between the religious uh, free exercise clause and the establishment clause. And that friction is that uh, some people want to exercise their religious liberty, uh, sometimes neglect the establishment clause. So I'll give a, a simple example. People, for example, who would like to uh, have more government funding in order to send their children to religious schools to, for specifically uh, sectarian purposes, for religious studies.
studies, uh, biblical studies, and so on. Uh, that's, of course, their freedom, and that's, I think, what that executive order primarily protects. But the other side of it is the establishment clause. So if the government gives money for specific religious purposes into a school, the problem is that if you entangle the government, that they need to examine what the money is being used for, they'll need to do reports, and the government, we should be able to exercise our freedom of religion completely free from government interference, and the best way to do that is to keep government out of religion. Well, the other legislation um, that's, that I see that's floating around Congress right now is the um, First Amendment Defense Act. I love the name. Who wouldn't be against defending the First Amendment? Um, and, and that really uh, prohibits the federal government from taking action against any business or person that basically discriminates against any LGBTQ person based on their religious conviction. Now, the only bar I've passed, Alex, is my local tavern, but it still <laughs> it seems to me that, in my view, that not only would, does that legislation redefine the First Amendment, but it puts the First Amendment, at least that aspect of it, in tension with the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. I, I don't know how you see that. and That's a that's something I believe that will only be answered after the court has decided the Masterpiece Cake uh, case, Jennifer. I'm sure you know about mm -hmm. where the Colorado Civil Rights Commission uh, prohibited discrimination on sexual orientation, amongst other factors, and the baker uh, refused to make a cake, an artistic cake, for uh, two men who wanted to have it take their marriage ceremony. And uh, he claims, the baker claims that he has a free uh, right to speak and to his artistic, the artistic uh, ability that he brings to the cake making as being uh, freedom of speech. And he says, if I shouldn't have to make cakes for these people, there's also a free exercise right that this is a religious matter for me and I shouldn't have, uh, you know, as a, as a religious matter, I shouldn't have to do this. And on the other side, there's the general law, law of general applicability, this law that prohibits uh, harass, uh, sexual uh, uh, discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation against, again, amongst other categories. That's what's relevant to Masterpiece Cakes. Uh, I would hope that the there is a limit to what people can do in terms of discrimination because if if a person can discriminate on people indiscriminately because of his or her religion, I'm concerned that that would also uh, lead to discrimination on the basis of race, ethnicity, Jewishness, or Muslim, Muslim or whatever. Yeah. Exactly. And I'm just afraid that, that we're of course, everyone can exercise their religion, but in as much as uh, Walmart, Walgreens, Target are open to the public, I think they should be open to all the public. Of course, now people might trespass there. They might create violent disturbances, and then they should be removed. But any peaceful citizen should get the same opportunities without a, a person blinding a discriminatory per person and has, saying, well, I have a sincere belief. Advantage, uh, so 
I see the other side. The other side has a strong argument that they're practicing religion and that it, it uh, induces them to have negative, uh, to, to, to have uh, impact on their religion. Well, we might ex expect that from a religious teacher, a teacher who is personally religious, but teaches in public school. That individual who is personally religious but will often invoke God in his or her everyday speech at a dinner party uh, to his or her spouse, to friends, to neighbors, and so on, we expect that when they're going to get in that classroom, even though maybe they strongly believe and authentically believe that God demands of them to proselytize, that in that classroom they're going to not do so. And so there are other examples of this where uh, I believe we, uh, you know, there, there are certain limits uh, that uh, we have certain principles and concepts about this anti-discrimination that um, should be balanced and, and sometimes outbalance the individual who may just speak in a way that's going to result in somebody being excluded from a public place of accommodation. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with constitutional law professor Alexander Sessis. Uh, and uh, Alex, back in uh, the fall, um, I believe that uh, during the fall, the President Trump was upset with NBC News because the network reported that he had proposed a huge increase in the nuclear arsenal. And then he, um, via Twitter, <laughs> he, he, he threatened uh, to punish NBC by revoking its license. Now, whether he can or can't, I mean, that, that, I mean that's, I, I'm not taking issue with that, but explain through the lens of the Constitution why such language would be problematic coming from the President of the United States. I think that the problem uh, is that you may be referring to, particularly one that I see, is the free press clause. Again, in the First Amendment, it is so critical as part of a society that accepts multiple views that the press be able to operate in a manner that is sometimes obnoxious to the administration, that the administration disagrees with. And this is a core expectation of any uh, representative uh, democracy. Uh, and it so contrasts our system from a totalitarian state of the type of, let's say, the communists uh, who repressed uh, the freedom of, the, of um, the press based on ideology that, that was demanded of journalists. So uh, I, I'm concerned that um, even speaking about revoking the license because of the perspective of a network, one that I may completely disagree with or agree with, will cause a chilling effect that is so essential for us to get both sides of the coin, to hear what Fox News has to say, to hear what CNN has to say, to hear what NBC, ABC, and so on has to say, uh, Mother Jones and National Review, and then to be able to identify where we as individuals stand as civic citizens whose vote counted just as much as the president's. Um, I'm a, this is a fill-in-the-blank question for you. The president of the United States need not be a constitutional scholar. However... You fill in the blank. However, the president should be a student and show great interest both as to the laws 
history uh, of, of not only of this country, but of the art of government, which is what the framers were. They, these were students of government. Uh, Harry, President Harry Truman did not have a college degree, but he was an extremely well-read man. He, he, he was a student. He was studious. He, he, he was an erudite person. He did not need that degree. And uh, the same is true of other people who were presidents who were not lawyers. Uh, the expectation is that they know what the limits of the law are, and that those are defined by the United States Supreme Court, so that they don't issue executive orders or uh, try to uh, get the legislature to pass laws that violate the, uh, the way that the Constitution has been interpreted by the courts, and as well as just so that the hubris, uh, their pride, their subjective thought about uh, the way the government should run should not be the dominant factor, but rather the best interest of the country as it's been identified through an evolution, through a historical evolution of that we the people have created through all three branches of government. And I, I guess uh, following up on, on that question, that uh, your last answer also suggested while you know the we the people, well, we all can't or should not be Oliver Wendell Holmes or Hugo Black. We all have a role in understanding the framework of this document that we're talking about this hour. I, I absolutely agree, which is why civics is taught at the grade school level and, of course, at the high school level as well. But uh, here in Illinois, which is where I live, uh, civics, uh, you have to take the civics exam in eighth grade, and you have to, you have to pass it. Uh, it's not a question we, we, of expertise. There, there is an expertise, of course, that's necessary to go to court, to the procedural devices, to be able to teach the law, order to be able to give advice to Congress people as they're formulating the law, to the administrative agencies as while they're creating regulations, advice to the president. Of course, there are, there's a role for expertise. But uh, each one of us, irrespective of education, irrespective of whether we were born in this country but, ha but currently have citizenship, have an equal say in, in our democracy, which is why, frankly, uh, this isn't quite on what you asked, but it's, it's uh, you, you just steer me back in the right direction if I've, if I've gone too Go far. Go right ahead. But why I'm very concerned about felon disenfranchisement. It's not only an ex the, the ability to express one's view and the legitimacy of that view is not only uh, something that comes from whether you're educated, whether you're not educated, which should be, we should all count as one irrespective, but it, it, the felon also has we have the ex-felon who has uh, views and perspectives, and that person, too, in my opinion, deserves to have a say in governance. And uh, unfortunately, there are still uh, uh, too many states where people, because of a past record, which might have occurred 10 to 20 years ago, but they've been law-abiding since, uh, does not permit them to vote. So um, another concern that I have. Well, oh, Alex, I'm glad you, you brought that up because as you were giving the answer, I was going, hmm, that, that sounds like a, a future column for me to write. So thank you. You've given me some fodder for my next column. That's very flattering. Thank you. Uh, uh, you know, now, in the context of governing, I, I, I certainly wouldn't go as far as to suggest that Senate Majority Leader Mitch, Mitch McConnell um, 
violated the Constitution when he declared that the next president and not President Obama uh, nominate the next Supreme Court, Supreme Court justice after the death of Anthony Scalia. But it certainly felt, at least to me, and I'm sure some others, that he was in violation of the spirit of the Constitution. And I wonder how you saw that. I agree with you. I, I think President Obama chose an excellent person, one who was acceptable to both the Republicans and to the Democrats. Uh, Merrick Garland had a, a fantastic record that I think they got all the votes. And uh, the, there's nothing, you know, the, the, the Republicans relied on something called the Biden rule, uh, which was Senator, Senator Biden when he first became vice president in 2000, uh, well, while he was still a senator. And it was not the Constitution. I, 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 I agree with you, and I, I, I would wish that, uh, irrespective of which side we are on politically, we would say that the president, the sitting president, should have an up-and-down vote be the vice and concurrence of the Senate to his or her appointment to the Supreme Court bench. And that, if, if we had an even rule like that, it would not only benefit Democrats and pre President Obama, but it would also benefit Republicans because if there were a Republican administration or a Democratic uh, Congress and they were to block the same thing, then how far can one go? One year before the election, which was the argument of the Republican majority in the Senate at that time? Or can we go back two years, three years? There's Why not? No Why not? Indefinite. And that's my concern, and I, I wish that both political parties would uh, rally around the president to give him an up-and-down vote. Of course, you could vote against him. You know, if uh, Judge Garland didn't deserve the vote, they wouldn't have given him the vote. But, but the president deserves to have uh, a hearing before the Senate uh, and uh, um, that the Senate should fulfill its uh, obligation. In fact, I wondered sometimes what would happen if President Obama filed a lawsuit and said that uh, the Senate is violating its constitutional obligation to vote on my business. Who knows? You know, it's, right. a, it's a, a question I could ask on an exam, but uh, certainly not one that would the president have standing. Would he even be able to bring this lawsuit? We don't know. It's never been brought. But it would have been an interesting test to see whether the court would say it's a political question, we can't even go there, or whether the court would say, okay, well, uh, President Obama here has a cognizable legal claim. He might have been injured in his political office. Let's go ahead and adjudicate this. And so, of course, it's no, it's not, no one brought such a case, and uh, you know, it's some, something we'll have to see whether anyone would test in the future. Is there um, a danger, in your view, that um, the Constitution, obviously, Supreme Court, uh, Supreme Law of the Land, but is there a danger if we only see the Constitution as a set of laws, uh, or does that uh, does that in and of itself suffice? I think that uh, we, the Constitution should be seen more as a set of principles for which there are certain textual limitations. The limitations must be followed, but there are much bigger and broader principles, and it goes back to our original uh, question uh, that you posed today, uh, that uh, you know, that go beyond just what the, the actual test, text of the Constitution says. I think, you know, we have, we've decided in this country, for better or worse, not to revise 
Tony Jim e Vine são impressionantes pelo vibe que as canções vão. Incredibly difficult to make any sort of amendments to it. And so we are left dealing with net neutrality and internet privacy and all manner of other contemporary issues uh, based on a constitution that was written, it depends on which part you're looking at, but in some cases, uh, you know, more than two centuries, about two and a half centuries ago. And the only way to deal with that, I think, is not just to look to the Constitution as a matter of law. What does the text say? And let's decide everything on the basis of that text, or let's decide everything on the basis of what it meant at the time for ratification. But to look at a much more holistic picture, to look at the structure of government, the, the three branches of government, our representation, to look at our history, to look at where we came from in the epics and morals and the evolution faults we've, we've discovered in our country, uh, racism, misogynism, xenophobism, uh, through time, to look at the prudential question. You know, what's, what's beneficial? How can, what, what, what good can come of these things, whether it's economic or whether it's the protection uh, of rights? And uh, in a series of other uh, questions, because it, you know, I think uh, ethical questions and normative questions here are uh, really very important. Let's look at uh, Supreme Court precedents. But my only, I apologize, it's really too long-winded, but the point is that I think the Constitution in and of itself cannot answer these questions alone. They're, they're, we, we have to reconcile ourselves to the need for complex thinking and to use, to, we must abide by the Constitution as a written form, but in as far as there is ambiguity, and there's a tremendous amount of ambiguity, there about, uh, you know, should, should the police be able to, uh, you know, without a search warrant, to obtain the records of a person's use of a cell phone, for instance? Well, how is that answered? You know, <laughs> whether or not the, the police can, can, must get a search warrant uh, to a house where it's a very high degree of heat coming from it, and, and believes there's probably marijuana growing there. You know, those things are, don't get answered strictly by the search and seizure clause of the Fourth Amendment, uh, nor are they answered by history and uh, the word uh, there, even though that's the, those are the starting points. I think we need to be more complex and sophisticated, and that includes going back to what you said about the common person's role. We, we should know how it is that people think about themselves as citizens and their, their influence, their ability to influence the government by just petitioning the government, writing to the government, voicing it, should be something that could have an impact. It should not just be the access to a politician. It should not be something that is almost exclusively merited by money and the degree of wealth an individual has. Yeah, and, and I also just want to ask you on a personal note, um, look at all the years you have Study the Constitution. You've uh, all the years you've taught constitutional law. Um, what does the document, does, or does the document, still hold you in the way when you started this process? Uh, it really does. There, I, I can't. I can't tell you how exciting it is to stand in front of students, or to travel around the country and to speak in front of faculty or or, or, or audiences in an auditorium, or to go to a foreign country and to give. A presentation. I, uh, there's. I am a. I am an optimist. Uh, 
Ridgeway, I really believe in the potential of the Constitution to be an evolution of this, uh, and that it includes what I mentioned earlier, liberal, liberal equality for the common good. It, in, it make us, it allow us to be freer in our ability to pursue our sense of happiness, our individual sense of happiness on an equal basis without being restricted through some arbitrary way. And in this way to make for a stronger republic, to make us as a nation stronger because of our individuality, because of our equality, because of our willingness to accept the talent pool that goes into it. And I believe there the Constitution is essential both in the creation of law, in the execution of law, and in the interpretation of law. Alexander Sestis, I want to thank you for once again uh, joining us on the Public Morality today. That was Alexander Sessis. Stay tuned for my closing remarks. for my closing remarks. A new book written by Harvard professors Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Zablat entitled How Democracies Die gives wonderful historical insight illustrating the manner democratic societies arose. If democratic erosion is indeed America's trajectory, it is unproductive to solely place the blame at the doorstep of the current president. The erosion of our democratic traditions has moved at a crockpot pace for decades if not centuries. American democracy has been hamstrung by touchstone moments of slow destruction. The attrition began when paradox became a silent third party during the nation's inception. Independence from Great Britain was based on liberty and equality in theory while implementing qualified freedom and inequality in reality. This led to not only a civil war, but also an armistice in the aftermath that included authoritarian rule in the form of Reconstruction. Levitsky and Zablat also illustrate how the primordial impulse of fear threatens democratic traditions. Could Franklin Roosevelt have issued an executive order for the internment of roughly 115,000 Japanese Americans were it not for Pearl Harbor? Could George W. Bush, along with bipartisan support, pass the Patriot Act were it not roughly five weeks after the 9-11 terrorist attack. Fear in a democratic society is uniquely qualified to justify what would otherwise be viewed as abhorrent. It seductively masquerades as the aster, legitimizing what it naively views as temporarily foregoing democratic traditions for a larger purpose. But in a democracy, what one assumes to be temporary if it goes beyond democratic guardrails, can have permanent impact. So certain of its pursuits, fear never asks self-reflective questions. In the late 1960s and early 70s, Vietnam and Watergate combined to add an unprecedented level of distrust of government that has only increased over time. The presidential administrations of Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon used mendacity to justify its actions robbing both of the moral standing that accompanies the office of president. 
Democracies die not from existential threats. Their demise is often internal. They die by maintaining a thin veneer of democratic tradition while operating under authoritarian rule. It was Alberto Fujimora in Peru, Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, and Juan Perón in Argentina. Ultimately, democracies die because of what the people are willing to tolerate. As tempting as it may be, immediate self-interest cannot be a rationalization if it leads through undemocratic means. Democracies depend on its values being preeminent and not those of political parties or individuals. Moreover, it can ill afford to have large swaths of its people succumbing to apathy and nihilism. As Levitsky and Zablot offered in their recent New Republic op-ed, quote, constitutions must be defended by political parties and organized citizens, but also by democratic norms or unwritten rules of toleration and restraint. Without robust norms, constitutional checks and balances do not serve as the bulwark of democracy we imagine them to be. The question becomes, will our democratic bell eventually toll for these? If so, that would be tragic for a people in pursuit of a more perfect union. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. Our archive broadcasts are located at our website, which is publicmorality.com. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast, which can be found on iTunes. You can follow me on Twitter as well as Facebook. And you can also find my weekly column at Politics NC. That's Politics NC. Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. Uh, 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 uh.